Our scripture today is from the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 44 through 52. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went out and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good into baskets, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all this? They answered, yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. This is the word of the Lord. Well, several years ago, I read an article about Terry Herbert. Using a 14-year-old metal detector, Herbert discovered in a farmer's field a collection of 1,500 gold and silver pieces that are believed to date back to the 7th century. The estimated value is easily a seven-figure sum. Herbert concluded one interview by saying, stuff like this is still in the ground. Is there anything better than this to be found? I think there is probably something inside of all of us that loves a good treasure hunt. The treasure of pirates, sunken treasure ships, treasure chests, and, and maps where X marks the spot are the stuff of legends and good fiction. I think that when we hear or read a story about hidden treasure, the adrenaline starts to rush through our veins and we get excited about all of the possibilities. You've probably seen a movie which at the end of a search, a key is carefully inserted in the treasure chest lock and, and the lock clicks and usually a dirty and dusty treasure hunter carefully lifts the lid to find it fill of ancient gold coins and, and diamonds and rubies and sapphires and pearls. And then as the camera pans out, there is usually a hug or a, a triumphant yell or, or some other signal that it was worth it all along. The treasure was real and all of the hardship to go at it this long way was worth it in the end. You see, stories of treasure lost or found excite us and they, they captivate our imaginations. And this is nothing new. You see, more than a hundred years before Jesus was born, a Jewish writer put it like this, wealth and wages make life sweet, but better than either is finding treasure. And so when Jesus tells stories about finding treasure, I think those in the crowd would have leaned forward to listen. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46, Jesus begins by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, 
The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. In just three quick verses, Jesus tells two parables that speak to the heart of what it means to align our priorities with God's priorities. In many ways, these two stories are alike. Both parables have the same five elements, and everything takes place in the same order. And there is a reference to something valuable. There's a moment of discovery a leaving and a selling of everything in order to buy something of matchless value. The first parable details how one man discovered a great treasure that was buried in a field. We don't know how he stumbles upon it. We don't know if he saw a glimmer through the sun or if he kicked an out-of-place rock aside to reveal what was underneath. All we know is that he found treasure And as quickly as he finds this treasure, he puts it back into its place. I think that sometimes it can be easy for us to get bogged down with modern questions when it comes to ancient stories. I've heard people ask, even this morning, wasn't it unethical for the man to not tell whoever owned the land about what was buried in it? It was several years ago before our children were born that I found a $20 bill in an aisle at Target, and I did perhaps what many of you have done. Out of the corner of my eye as I was reaching down, I looked to my left and I looked to my right. I looked all around and not seeing anyone, I put the $20 bill in my pocket. And what followed, though, my wife activated my conscience with a two-pronged approach. At first, she said this, well, what if that was some little boy's 20 that he had been saving? And then the real kicker, when we have kids someday, what kind of lesson would you want to teach our son or daughter? <laughs> my head went down, and I walked to the front, and I surrendered the 20. And so, if you're thinking about this man who finds this treasure in someone else's field, we might say, shouldn't he notify the owner? I think this is a good contemporary question. And yet, as several commentators point out, to the audience that was listening to this parable, if the man had acted differently, the crowd would have considered him foolish at best. The point is that he has found a great treasure, and as a result, the reader expects him to do whatever it takes to obtain it. Well, first, he he buries it right back where it was, And, and note how he doesn't just take the treasure without first buying the land. I guess you could say the ethical line in the story is that it wasn't his yet for the taking. And as a side note, the point is made that just because the treasure is still there after he buys the land, uh, this means that seemingly whoever owned the property previously didn't seem to know what was there in the first place. We are to assume that the original owner is long gone. It reads like a story of digging up ancient treasure. And so this man goes back home, and he pools everything that he has, and he spends it all, and he buys the land And did you catch how he joyfully sells everything that he has to obtain in order to obtain the hidden treasure? This is an enthusiastic and wholehearted choice. He doesn't sell everything he has out of obligation, out of guilt, or out of peer pressure, but instead out of delight. 
As this first story comes to a close, we are left with a picture of this man with a deed in his back pocket and a a shovel in his hands and a smile on his face as he's digging up the treasure. You see, he had given everything for this, and it was worth it. I like how one Matthew commentator, John Nolan, puts it when he writes, ownership of the field required a total reordering of priorities. By the end of this first parable, I think we're already starting to ask the question, what is Jesus really trying to say with this story? And see, already Jesus had said that God's kingdom is like this story. That is to say, pursuing a godly way of life is like finding a great treasure. It's worth it to give all that you have and and all that you are in order to obtain it for yourself. Preacher and scholar Tom Long observes that in this parable, the discovery of the treasure was something that was a dazzling and unexpected event. And see, in this first parable, something good was stumbled upon, and it was seen to be good. Toward this end, I'm reminded that sometimes we find our way to God, or maybe we find our way back to God in ways that are shocking or even surprising. Maybe that was your story. Perhaps it was a display of kindness or generosity or love when you had your sights focused on another path altogether. Whether that's your story or not, I think this is an important reminder that the people of God should always be characterized by kindness, gentleness, and self-control because you never know when someone else's path might intersect with yours. Well, just in case we didn't get it the first time, Jesus continues to make the same point in the second story. Verse 45 begins by saying, again. In other words, here's another story much like the first one. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like an expert jewel broker who is looking for fine pearls. Well, unlike the previous parable, this isn't an accidental discovery. In this story, the jewel broker is actively looking and searching for something of known value. One Roman author and philosopher from this era describes pearls as having the topmost rank among all things of price. And so just the mention of pearls already signals extreme wealth. The story details that this merchant isn't just looking for any pearls, he's looking for fine pearls. He's a man with definite resources, capable of buying fine pearls. Note the plural. As the story goes on, we learn that just as he is going about his normal, everyday routine, he finds one pearl that is unlike any other that he has ever encountered before. This one pearl is so valuable that he spends all that he has to buy this single pearl of great price. I think that we can assume in the story that this man has a sharp eye. He hasn't been fooled by a fake. As my grandfather used to say, this isn't the real decoy. This is the real specimen. And as soon as he sees it, he immediately knows that it's worth it to give up everything in order to own it. It's an opportunity that's too good to pass up. 
The man in this parable knows that everything else will be evaluated by this one standard. Every other pearl will be judged with this one beside it on the jeweler's cloth. People will talk of this man and his pearl. From now on, nothing will ever be the same. Both of these parables talk about what total commitment looks like. And both stories focus on the decisions that must be made in light of what was discovered. The response in both parables is quick and the decision is clear. Whatever it takes, it will be worth it in the end. And considering both of these parables, I think that the parallels to God's kingdom are striking. First, following God in our lives will be costly Costly because it means putting the things of God first in our lives. Put another way, it will be a good road, but that doesn't mean it will always be an easy one. But then again, most things in life that are worth having will require taking up a challenge. I like the comments of Brad Young on this passage. He writes, The kingdom is expensive. It costs everything the disciple possesses. The joy of discipleship, however, overpowers every worldly hindrance. See, in the end, it comes down to the life decisions that we make. What will you chase after in your life? What's your treasure? What's your pearl? In John Steinbeck's short story titled The Pearl, he tells of a young fisherman named Kino who discovers the greatest pearl that the world has ever known. It's described by Steinbeck as being as perfect as the moon and as large as a seagull's egg. In what follows, though, the reader witnesses Kino becoming consumed by his love of his great pearl. Or perhaps more pointedly, we witness how the potential within the pearl becomes an unquenchable obsession. Steinbeck wrote, And the music of the pearl rose like a chorus of trumpets in his ears. Then to the lovely gray surface of the pearl came the little things Kino wanted, a harpoon to take the place of one lost a year ago a new harpoon of iron with a ring at the end of the shaft, and and his mind could hardly make the leap. A rifle, but why not, since he was so rich? And Kino saw Kino in the pearl, Kino holding a Winchester carbine. It was the wildest daydreaming and very pleasant. His lips moved hesitantly over this. A rifle, he said, perhaps a rifle. It was the rifle that broke down the barriers. This was an impossibility, and if he could think of having a rifle, whole horizons were burst, and he could rush on. For it is said that humans are never satisfied, that you give them one thing, and they want something more. The pearl was destroying Kino. His greed drove him to mistreat those around him and even to murder in order to protect the pearl. Kino was willing to risk everything for the price of the pearl. The reader witnesses this inner struggle, and I think quietly in our own hearts, if we're honest, it forces us to think about our horizons and our wants and our dreams 
and our deepest wishes. On the very last page of the story, after misplaced obsession has worked its full tragedy, we find Kino and his wife standing at a cliff's edge. After a long and, and violent struggle, Steinbeck ends with these words. And Kino drew back his arm, and he flung the pearl with all his might. Kino and Juana watched it go, winking and, and glimmering under the setting sun. They saw the little splash in the distance, and they, they stood side by side, watching the place for a long time. And the pearl settled into the green, lovely water and, and dropped toward the bottom. The waving branches of the algae called to it and beckoned to it. The lights on its surface were green and lovely. It settled down to the sand bottom among the fern-like plants. Above the surface of the water was a green mirror, and the pearl lay on the floor of the sea. A crab, scampering over the bottom, raised a little cloud of sand, and when it settled, the pearl was gone. And the music of the pearl drifted to a whisper and disappeared. Steinbeck's story of the pearl is different from the one that Jesus told. Perhaps we could say that it's the flip side of the same story. I think that the point is that a lot of people can get caught up in chasing after all sorts of treasures that don't last. Treasures that aren't ultimately life-giving. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there now. These treasures and pearls can consume us and fill our hearts with greed and desires that aren't worth it when all is said and done. In the two parables that Jesus tells, we find him essentially saying, here is a treasure that is worth enduring for. Here is something that's worth chasing after with all that you are. I wonder today, what are you, what are we chasing after? What are you pursuing with everything that you have in your life? What do you want more than anything else right now? I think that the subtle warning is this. Be careful. Be careful. Don't spend all of your life hunting for treasures that are of no value. In your life, make sure that what you're following is worth it and that it's something that will truly last. God's good news, that is to say, the gospel is compared to a treasure and a pearl of great price. But it's crucial that we understand that the gospel is not a commodity to be bought and sold. It isn't a closeout deal to be peddled hastily and, and without care. The gospel isn't something that you have in your possession with the result being the exclusion or the, the marginalization of others. Rather, the good news of God ought to possess you, to take hold of you. And importantly, in the parables Jesus tells, both discoveries are marked by joy. Our minds should be captivated and, and spellbound by the reality of God's goodness and what this might look like in our lives and in the lives of our neighbors and yes, the gospel will even teach us a thing or two about the importance of depossession, of loosening our grip as we walk through life. The good news of God and, and living in light of it is a life-altering reality. 
Moreover, paying attention to God's ways in the world redefines the human vocation, our goals, our priorities, and our desires. Some commentators point out that perhaps the very vocation of the man who sells everything in order to obtain the pearl could have changed. You see, we aren't told that after selling everything that he he turns around to sell the pearl again. This might be pushing the text too far, but I think it's at least worth considering how godly priorities might alter who you are, what you do, how you live, and how you love on a daily basis. And the gospel is a world of possibility and imagination. In the words of Willie Jennings, the gospel is the thing that's worth giving up everything up to have. Did you notice that Jesus concludes the passage we heard read this morning by asking if his disciples, if they understand? I think this is a question for all of us to answer as well. See, the bottom line and the real paradox is that in giving everything that we are for God's kingdom, we'll end up gaining everything that really matters and that really makes a difference. I'd like to close this morning with the words of Annie Dillard. What she says about the writing life seems equally true for the Christian life. She writes, One of the things that I know about writing is this. Spend it all. Shoot it. Play it. Lose it all right away every time. Do not hoard what seems good for a later place in the book or for another book. Give it. Give it all Give it now. The impulse to save something good for a better place later is the signal to spend it now. My friends, may you spend it all and may you spend it now on the things that truly matter.